You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Prehistories Podcast with me, your host, Kim Biddulph. Now, today I have just come from this morning from inspiring people and immersing them in the Stone Age. And hopefully today in this podcast, as you're listening, we can inspire and immerse you as well. Because today is the long-awaited, much-anticipated poetry special. Um, we are. I'm, I'm joined by um, two guests today. Erin um, Kavanagh. Hello, Erin. Hello. Hello. And Erin is a geomythologist, is that right? It is, yes. And what does that mean? What do you do, Erin? It means that I study the relationship between geology and stories. That sounds fascinating. Um, and uh, we obviously, we, we met first at TAG, the Theoretical Archaeology Group, um, in December in Bradford. And uh, uh, it was a... I think a, a wonderful session about um, called Tyrannical Tales and this is where the gem of the idea of uh, poetry special came into my head after meeting you. So we'll hear a little bit more about how you kind of uh, bring those two um, very different, in many people's minds, different um, disciplines together. And I'm also joined by Gavin McGregor from North Light Heritage. Hello Gavin! Hello, Kim. How are you? I'm very good. So nice to um, speak to you. And um, how are you doing today? It's a busy but very enjoyable day. Excellent. Um, and uh, I got to know Gavin, well, talked to you on Twitter and things like that, really, hadn't I? Um, after um, coming across your blog, which I find is really beautiful and very um, uh, emotive, really emotional for me to to read your blog post so i always look forward to them thank you very much i'm pleased to hear that no you're welcome so um you guys are both the you're both poets right yeah i wouldn't describe myself as that i describe myself as somebody who's explaining exploring poetry and exploring maybe a, a poetical uh, perspective so it's well, like Describe myself as a poet first and foremost. Yeah, and so what you describe yourself as an archaeologist first and foremost, Gavin? I think that's what I'm grounded in. I probably, in the context we're speaking, describe myself as a prehistorian. Yeah, well, that's very useful for this podcast. Yes, I mean, we don't mind a little bit of history every now and again, but prehistory is where <laughs> where it's at. But <laughs> um, but uh, is it is it is it impossible to be both then, both yeah. archaeologist, prehistorian, um, and poet? Uh, from my point of view, sorry. Yeah, from your point. Of, sorry, go on, Gavin. Uh, no, absolutely not. I think um, it, it, it's probably possible. Um, to combine the two and I think there's probably many poets who have the sensibilities of archaeologists and there's who many archaeologists who would uh, probably wish to extend their voice and their kind of creative practice in a way that um, you know uses poetry. Is it a case of that you don't feel like uh, it, maybe this kind of uh, well documented imposter syndrome idea that you don't feel like you're you can you can describe yourself as a poet? 
Oh, there's definitely a degree of that. <laughs> well, I love your your writing. I think it's uh, uh, well, I would call it, I would definitely call it poetry. But Erin, you what do you think about this? Um, the, how do, how we label ourselves? I'm I'm laughing at that, saying, "Okay, well, Gavin and I are standing either side of the same seesaw." Then yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I I've been immersed in poetry for almost forty years, um, and so to me that comes first. But I work equally between prehistory, archaeology, and poetry. Yeah. So yeah. if it's impossible to do all three. I don't let my life know that because that's what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, are you blazing a trail somewhat, Erin? Because I I was, I I, had never really thought about combining all of those things um, uh, before or that it was even possible to do. Um, There's not many geomythologists around, I would have thought. No, no, there there aren't. There's, There's... a lot of people who um, dip their toes in geomythology, um, yeah. but not many who dive in, probably for good reason. <laughs> so tell us what it. So tell us more about the geomythology then, um, and and what what it is that you do. What are you working on at the moment? Um, at the moment, I've taken geomythology in a slightly different direction. Um, and I'm looking at it from the perspective of deep mapping. Yeah. As a way of linking science, predominantly geology, paleoenvironmental archaeology, with the stories of a place and the songs and the poetry and the modern community's perception of those things. So that mm. would have a multitude of, of voices. And I'm looking to present a space which gives all those voices an airing without them competing or speaking over one another. Small, mm. small. Carry, no, Gary, that's interesting. Carry on. <laughs> so what geomythology does, well, what, it, what it's traditionally done from um, classical times, really, with, with Strabo, Plato and all, um, is to look at the landscape, the geology of the landscape, and to look at the stories and see where details contained within a story might have tangible presence in the landscape. Wow. Uh, that's, that's traditionally how it's been taken. And the approach then in more recent centuries, though actually some of the classical scholars took a similar a scathing approach um, has been that if stories contain information that isn't correct then the story gets dismissed and it's only stories that are um, factual that have any value whereas what I'm doing is arguing against that and saying that stories aren't about explaining the world science is about explaining the world stories, poetry are about describing and responding to the world. They may, in the course of that, explain things, but that isn't their intention. Um, and so you can find facts within stories of poetry. Yeah. They deliberately put in there, or they may not. We simply don't know. So balancing the two things requires a slightly different perspective than just saying 
science is right, poetry and stories are subservient. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so do you find um, a very kind of, does it inform the archaeological research by, yeah, yeah. Um, and has it, has it had that kind of um, an impact on um, how uh, archaeologists that you work with um, have actually, um, uh, uh, has it informed their research questions for instance as it and and uh and even the 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 um evidence that comes up does it do they f- find different things when they if they when they consider th- uh their site or their landscape through these different ways of looking yes we we have found that that occurs um when there is information in a, a story and i've asked well we have say a reference to a submerged forest in the story of Ben de Gaedvran, and Ben de Gaedvran is, is wading from Wales to Ireland yeah. in the story. Now, could he have waded from Wales to Ireland? And if there's a submerged forest in Wales, which we know there is, is there one in Ireland? I was yeah. told, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, uh... Ah. Oh, um, <laughs> oh, look! Yeah. <laughs> so... So do these stories have such deep such deep roots that they actually are like like um a a, a community's memory uh, of of very very deep time or is it or is that too um yeah too prescriptive really is it <laughs> um it might be best if we don't discuss memory or I won't shut up for the rest of the podcast <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, um, <laughs> Gavin. When you're, when you're, what, what is it that that moves you to um, write your blog posts and to and to create your poetry um, about the particular places that you visit? I think it stems from a recognition or a sense that the way that archaeologists are trained to write is very powerful in the way that everyone was talking about a scientific inquiry. Uh, but we aren't encouraged to try different forms of communication. Uh, I mean, there has been some examples in you know, archaeological writing in the past, and there are some really interesting strands of creative practice that have emerged in relation to different responses in the past by archaeologists. But generally, we're, we're, we're trained to write in certain ways. My response um, to the places is more about a mediation of my experience that in some way may touch on how others in the past have journeyed to or encountered material elements that we can still share and encounter. And it seemed to me that to try and write in a way that was perhaps crisper or more distilled was a step towards capturing something of the essence of the place or the experience of going to those places. It it really does. I mean, it's, um, it's, you combine it with such, with, with lovely photography as well of, um, the places that you go. And, um, it really does kind of make you see those through your eyes and in a different way to if you were going to kind of just do a survey or whatever. 
again, I think that's part of the practices that archaeologists have, that we are often so focused on a series of methodologies that is about the inverted commas, objective truth, the measurement, and there's a whole series of other encounters that we know we have um, as people, as uh, you know, prehistorians, that we don't always tell those stories and we don't always tease out those moments. Um, I think, and back to your point about the photography, for me, that's perhaps one of the reasons I, I said I didn't think it was poetry is because the, the words really work very much and are designed to work with the images. So what I'm trying to craft is something that is, in a sense, audiovisual. Um, it may have a poetic sensibility, shall we say, but I don't think it would work as strongly without mm. those images. You do that as well, don't you, Erin? I mean, you're, it's it's very much a, um, a, an audiovisual combination, isn't it, with your map work and other images that come in? Yes, I... I... I can only agree with everything Aaron has just said. And the one of the areas uh, uh, I work in is combining photography and art and performance and poetry. Mm. So one of the things I find particularly good for the virtual medium is a photograph of a site or the artifact or an art photograph or a photograph of a drawing that's of a site and then a poem that is tied in with the mm. image so they combine a mixed media response to sense and place that you can't separate out to get the whole conversation mm. when you separate them out you get fragments of the mm. conversation um in the same way that that gavin was saying so we as archaeologists we use photographs when we're on site we use writing the odd yeah. line down we use imagery oh that you know the chocolate clay that's just above the nougat well <laughs> that's our neolithic horizon you know that's how we speak yeah. to each other so instead of as Gavin said these these things getting lost why not bring them out and show holistically the experience of working on site and the experience of a site speaking back yes. to us I wonder, do you take audio recordings of the site themselves and the the sounds that you hear from there? Because, um, I mean, obviously, the, some of the audio mm -hmm. comes through the writing and obviously the writing being full of imagery and full of um, rhythm and so on, that you get, you get a sense of that, uh, you get that sound in your head or if you read it out loud. Um, but what about the, the sounds of the places as well? Get yes, I do. Um, at the moment, I'm exploring just how to make that work through video mm. i have a substantial back catalog of video footage from um my favorite is the sound of the wind on a beach and it, it's coming across an archaeological site picking up mm. sand so you hear the sand hitting the monuments and it's fantastically mm. atmospheric and there's poem to go with that but we're working on how to get the balance right between those things and that also plays the, you know the sound of a digger mm. um when the digger goes into the clay and that <laughs> sound as it lifts it out and the brief moment when you can see yeah. something beneath before the walls collapse and it's gone all over <laughs> again you can capture that sound in in a bit yeah. of video 
and it needs to not get in the way then of the poetry. Yeah. And so that's that's the balance. So you have to be a, be a bit of a, a software whiz, really, as well, to gather all this together in a meaningful way. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I have a teenage son. Yeah, that's very that. useful. They're very, they're very useful, aren't they? <laughs> very useful. Do you? Yeah. I mean, you must get you. You work up in um, uh, Glasgow area, northwest um, England as well, don't you, Gavin? Is that the, your kind of stomping ground? I, I'm I'm lucky enough to to get to work over much of Scotland oh, in different great. ways, uh, but uh, but uh, a lot of my uh, practice has been uh, because I'm based in mm. Southwest Scotland, you know, around the area there, and um, I do have a, a soft spot for the Lake District mm. as well. So I've spent kind of personally, more so than professionally, time up there. Um, I'm an avid hill walker as well, and love being in the uplands. Mm. So uh, I'm I'm drawn to places, I suppose, where the prehistories better preserved um so i i managed to combine both that hill walking going and finding and exploring sites but also encountering landscapes that are quite remarkable in their own right and do you think uh, you uh, i haven't come across any recorded audio um from your hill walks and you know up in the the lake district but that would be um an interesting addition do you think it would work or are you are you um or would it be too much like um hard work having to get it and edit it and etc <laughs> i know what i'm talking about doing a podcast yeah <laughs> i i think i think there's a degree of expediency <laughs> in the sense that um uh, uh but also I tr i'm trying to uh e edit what i do and and try and craft it in a way because those limitations of time that the audio would be just one dimension too mm. far. It's not that I'm not interested and don't see the value, um, but my work is in times complicated by the fact I actually engage materially as well. So one of the pieces that I've blogged with is part of a bigger project, which is responding to an assemblage of waste fragments where I'm actually trying to engage in a, in a collaborative way with mm. those pieces. So for me, I'm drawn more to maybe a, a, a sculptural or a installation kind of approach as well to presence other, um, you know, thoughts or extend the conversation mm. in different ways. Absolutely. That, that sounds like it would be a good idea. Where was that assemblage from? It, it's a Lake District assemblage uh, that there is a long story to. <laughs> Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Um, I, 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 all, all I can say is in the sense that it has worked itself, it's worked its way down a series of um, kind of movements from the point it was excavated to the point that it was about to drop out of the archaeological mm. system. And I, I realised this was going to happen and thought there was an opportunity to respond creatively to it, which I've started a process. And ultimately, the aspiration is to return that assemblage to the Lake District in a way that I hope um, we can work with others to, um, you know, uh, take it to the right place in the right Ooh, way. That sounds good. And Erin, you're, um, you're based in Wales, mostly. And um, uh, what have you, you've been doing some work around Cardigan Bay in that kind of area recently, have you? <clears throat> yes, um, simply because that's where I live <laughs> and resources are mm. on my doorstep. Uh, it's purely, purely pragmatic. Um, as 
I'm I'm not Welsh. I'm Anglo-Irish, but I grew up on the Welsh border. So I'm neither an infiltrator nor a native, which gives me um, a strong position to explore mm. the stories and science mm. here. Um, it's it's a bit like the imposter syndrome in that I don't really belong to any of the different factions, <laughs> but I'm familiar with all. I think of that's them. quite useful, isn't it, to bring people together to think in different ways as well, because sometimes so often we are working in our own little worlds and don't really think about what other people from other disciplines or from the creative disciplines could actually bring to our work. Exactly. And, you know, the geomythology crosses 11 different disciplines. So that, that's quite a broad sweep to intellectually mm. engage with. And then working in Cardigan Bay, then we're crossing languages and languages through time so Middle Welsh, Middle Irish, as well as mm. Modern Welsh and English and a bit of wow. Breton. And, you know, there's, there's a lot yeah. going on. So I have to work collaboratively with people who have greater skills than I do. In, um, mm. All I have to do is, is, is mix it all together in a cauldron and produce something at the end of the day. That, that's the fun bit. <laughs> yeah, they, they do they do the clever <laughs> stuff. Um, I'm just, no, I'm. Yeah. Uh, I think you do the clever stuff too, Erin. <laughs> um, now we're going to take a short break, um, and there'll be messages from the Archaeology Podcast Network. Um, and, so, and then after we come back, we're going to hear some of Erin and Gavin's poetry. So do stay tuned for that. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. We don't do dinosaurs. Did aliens build Stonehenge? Did the Easter Island statues walk? Did the Vikings colonize Midwest America? What does mainstream archaeology have to say about all of this? Listen to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast and learn about popular archaeological mysteries, hoax or fact. Learn to tell the difference with Dr. Kenneth Fader and co-host Sarah of the Archie Fantasies blog. Check out the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Archie Fantasies and get ready to think critically. Let's get back to the show. Funny beady blokes you will see are a staple of archaeology. Hello and welcome back to the Prehistories podcast. Um, so it's now time for some, some poetry, seeing as we've been talking about it and how it can be used um, and how uh, my guests um, create their poetry and what inspires them. Um, so I'd like to invite uh, my guests now to... Um, uh, to actually read some of their poetry to us. Now, Erin, you um, have got a number of different examples of your poetry and it would be lovely to hear how you use it in different ways. Okay, well, I'll, I'll start with um, a recent one. Um, it takes me back to my scavenging mm -hmm. point. And it's a, it's a parody of... Um, a reasonably well-known archaeological poem by Seamus Heaney. I, I find it, possibly due to my own personal heritage, um, I can't escape Heaney. He follows <laughs> me everywhere. He sits in my head and comments, sometimes in argument with Alex <laughs> Thomas. Um, <laughs> I love, I love and, this, and so, this I, image I, of how your mind works, Erin. That's fantastic. 
Yeah, my, my apologies. Um, so anyway, this is, this is called Digging Without Heaney. Between his finger, palm and thumb, the trowel rests snug as a gun. Beside my barrow, a sleek swallowing sound when the spade sinks into gravelless ground, the archaeologist digging down, till his straining shoulders seaweed level, so high the forgotten land a thousand years away stooping in rhythm with the waving sea. Where he was digging, his father dug and his son will follow against the boot, a heritage in mind. We cut out the blue-grey cold, buried the bright edge deep to scatter ancient bark, pink in the dark, organic coolness of scubiculori clay. Old gods watched the time unravelling into tin and bag, eaten by unfamiliar air. Other people's grandfathers cut turf in this bay. They left a checkerboard of bog behind, where now I carry samples and a measure, marked sloppily with raining ink, and an auger taller than the sea standing houses, who watch the storm ravens scavenge their oppressor under Davy Jones' disguise. For the old turf, digging, the hot smell of sulphur, the squelch and slap of soggy peat, the curt cuts of an edge through past horizons awakening in my head. But I've not the strength of turn to follow them. Between my finger, palm and thumb, a squat pen rests. I'll dig with it. <laughs> Just a, a small round of applause. That's absolutely lovely. Slightly stolen. <laughs> no, it's inspired by, uh, uh, this is where ideas come from, isn't it? <laughs> Yes, and it's the the archaeological question is. Um, oh, I can't hear you very well, Erin. There we go. Yes, yes. Can yes. you hear me again? Now? The archaeologist in question is working in a peat bog on a beach where his father worked and where his son Gosh. now works. So it ties into the to what Heaney was talking about, but across across the wow. sea. A short one here then. Um, I, I write a lot of haikus and tankers because yeah. they're quick. They're, you know, the simple, you've got a structure and can, you can do them on the fly. So this, this is uh, Lacotte. Mammoths cannot fly, nor can they flee over rocks. Their bones on grazing land lie between caves and an early shore, now covered by the tide. And what that's doing is refuting an early archaeological yeah. interpretation. So we had Scott's Mammoth Drive in the 1980s, and then that's been refuted a couple of years ago by Becky Scott's colleagues. Yeah. Um, and so what that, that tanker is doing is challenging the old archaeology. And it was only after I'd written it that I realised it applied to the Welsh coast as well as really? to Jersey. Which is convenient. <laughs> yeah, because that's about La Cote de saint Brelard, isn't it, on Jersey? Yeah, yes. which is a Neanderthal site. But uh, yes, I guess so. That the, uh, the whole idea of um, uh, the sea moving away and it um, uh, being a much it, it, there's quite a lot in your poetry about the sea and about submerged landscapes, <laughs> isn't there? Yeah, that's my area of research. And so, because I'm using the poetry to aid my research and then I'm having to um, express my research both academically and to mm. the community 
uh, sea flooding, submerged landscapes. It so it, it it's one language really. So does it is it um you say that it 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 actually informs your research and and um and you write academically too. Um it, so is it um a useful tool for you to to imagine what could have could be an interpretation of the of the archaeology that you found is that is that one of the ways that you use your poetry it is yes um with a, a recent project we've been attempting to timeline for mm. beach uh, which has proven mm-hmm. challenging and then i've put that timeline into a poem and in putting it into a poem, I was then able to detect gaps in the data. So we had to keep going back and collecting more data and going back to the paperwork, which we just hadn't noticed wow. looking at it yeah. specifically because each piece made sense itself. But when you try and actually make it sequential in a poem, oh, <laughs> there yes. are issues. It's when you write fiction, um, historical fiction, and you say, well, okay, we, we have um, we have bowls here, but what? How did people eat with the bowls? Did they use fingers? Did they have cutlery? Yeah. yeah. And suddenly, the archaeologist is going, yeah, oh, we've got no idea. Who knows? <laughs> no idea. Let's have a think about that. Process. Yeah. I w- yes, I was talking um, about this very um process well i talk about it a lot in the prehistories podcast um but particularly when um we were talking about the gathering night by um margaret elphinstone Mm. and um how she worked with uh caroline wickham jones particularly an archaeologist in scotland um about uh, uh, to inform her research and she was asking caroline these questions did they have breakfast what did they have for breakfast and caroline was like i have no idea because these aren't things if we don't have evidence for it we don't think about it until you start to create that story or or the poem that's yes and this is how i got into archaeology because uh, actually because my mother is a historical fiction mm-hmm. writer and oh, um right. i've been written with her for 25 years wow. now and I had to go and research these gaps yes. um, and then so, so that got me interested in archaeology in the first wow. place and, um, Victoria Whitworth who is, is another um, Scottish based historical fiction writer um, she uses her archaeological and art historian knowledge to then inform her fiction so that there is um, an intellectual authority in the narrative mm. that, that she's constructing, which is, I think, uh, and gives gives people something free almost. It's it's an extra quality to the mm. text. Yeah, this is, I love this the fact that it, it, yeah we're starting to wake up to the um, the symbiosis between poetry or fiction and. And research, Gavin. Um, um, you're going to read what, part of a poem um, f- uh, that is actually on your blog, which we will talk. We'll we'll give links to the blog on the on the podcast, um, which is one of my favourites from your blog, actually. Um, so, and it's. Uh, would you like to introduce it and and read some of it for us? Um, 
this poem um, relates to an ongoing series of explorations um, to some of the uplands of Scotland. Um, it relates to uh, three different visits to a Neolithic axe factory in Perthshire called Cragnachillich, uh, which was excavated some years ago um, and is in a relatively inaccessible place. It's also a part of a broader story of how axes were created and desired and circulated over considerable distances and there's been much academic debate as to why that might be uh, you know what causes are why people were doing this socially etc so as part of an ongoing exploration i've been undertaking i felt it was appropriate to try and write a piece of poetry that was as much about a kind of question of what we do as archaeologists and how we make sense of the past. But also recognising that our relationship with the past is integral to our present situation, mm -hmm. opportunities and aspirations we create for the future uh, as people, as archaeologists, as um, citizens in a sense. So the title, We Are But a Moment in the Flow of Time, was very much about that that pinprick moment on these longer stories that are still unfolding in our landscapes. So I'll read a few bits of it. Um, we are but a moment in the flow of time. Can we speak of love, love of a landscape, of the dance of light and cloud upon leaden autumn waters, of the sway of cotton grass in a playful summer breeze, of the cool green air which wisps around your spring hair, of those little details which reveal a world, of the escape from mundane valley floor, of soaring rocks, glacial scarred and winter shattered, raptor and carrion, your rapture and return. Can we speak of love from fragments, from imperfect traces, from the hard, cold realities? Can we speak of love Love of the object, sought, hard-won, cherished, and curated. Can we speak of love separated by 5,000 years, joined by a humanity? Is it too hard to feel what it means to acquire, to complement, to share? Thank you, Gavin. Thank you. <laughs> I was reading along with that on your blog, and you're right that the images really add a lot to it, don't they? Um, as well, I mean, not that <laughs> the poem itself is very um, um, emotional as well um, and provocative. I think when you when you when you start out as an archaeologist, or I know I was very romantic when I chose to be an archaeologist, even though it was based on Time Team, which was kind of like the least romantic way of presenting archaeology, really. But, um, and in a way, it gets kind of beaten out of you at university. You, you have to be objective and you have to, you, it doesn't matter about your feelings about a place. It's got to be based on the evidence. And, there's something very cold about that, really. That I think that your your work, both of you, you it, it um um breaks that down. 
I think you're right, Kim. I think we're inevitably uh, disciplined. It's, it's the very nature of training, the very nature of education. You you are moulded and structured to behave in certain different ways, uh, and that's the strength of, I suppose, you know, uh, that process. Uh, I remember myself being somebody who was never very good at art, was never very good at drawing. And I remember going through a series of processes about being taught how to draw technically artifact illustrations mm. to the extent that I, I learned that, but it was a very cold technical process. Um, and I, I think there's a, there's a sense for me that all the hard work as archaeologists, we put so much effort and energy in, we, we discover these amazing sites, we, we make wonderful insights into humanity, and we kind of lose the last 5% of effort, whereas mm. if we embrace more creative responses i think the very kind of multidisciplinary nature of archaeological practice means that we, we have something very powerful and very potent that people want to hear more of i think these different forms of expression absolutely because people are always so interested in our jobs and what we do and yet we're we're so cold about it i think some a lot of the time and you um as you work with communities and you must do this too erin the who get so excited and are so joyful about their heritage and it being involved in dis that that discovery um that that it's that joy that that um that comes through in in your poetry and um, ca and can be captured in those creative ways and that we should share because, I mean, frankly, it's a fantastic job. It might not be well paid, might have bad terms and conditions and, you know, contracts uh, and people may well complain and they do quite a lot. But actually, when you get down to it, what we're doing is discovering about people and it's, it, it is the most um, exciting thing in the world, really, for me. Sorry, I don't know wait, wait, who's going to uh, respond to that. But <laughs> Gavin. Well, I, I think many people I know in the sector will actually describe what they do as a privilege. Yeah. And, and I think we are, in a sense, storytellers, uh, facilitators, reanimators. We, we, we discover things that are forgotten. And by connecting them in, to, through a variety of different ways, create it is a fundamentally creative process. Um, we create a kind of cultural resource that, Ironically, it's often artists, poets who, who, who translate it in different ways. And for me, I suppose that's part of why I'm very interested in this area of what you might describe as creative archaeology. So if, if we can extend that practice, I think we can only do more in terms of making it relevant and joyful. Yeah. yeah. I think joyful is the word, really. Yeah, I Completely, I completely agree. We're going to take another quick break. Sorry. Uh, it's not just joyful, though. It, it's not just emotion. Sorry. Right. Sorry, Erin. We've lost you. We're going to take a quick break now. And we'll... Oh, uh, I'm here. Okay. Um, it's good that you're back. We'll take a quick break to because the, the Archaeology Podcast Network would like to um, play you some messages again. And we'll be back in a moment. We'll con continue this discussion about the creativity in archaeology and joyfulness. And my guests also have um, some poems uh, from other uh, poets that they would like to read. So come back in a moment. Professional Certifications for Scientists, or PCS, aims to provide practical educational videos, field guides, 
knowledge tests, professional certifications, and deployment connections to professional scientists everywhere. Check out the videos page for high-quality training videos on a variety of topics. Find PCS videos at www.pcscourses.com forward slash videos. PCS, a place for good scientists to become great science professionals. Welcome back. Um, now, we, we want to get more joy out of this poetry and we want to also... Uh, it, it really cl clears your mind, I think, and it, uh, it can point the way to things and make things easier to understand in many ways. Um, it, it kind of gets to the essence of an idea. Um, now, both of my guests have um, some poems that they would like to, uh, to read to you now. Now, uh, who wants to go first? Um, Gavin? Uh, okay. I've selected two poems that I think are very interesting. Uh, the first one uh, was actually part of a compilation of work that was commissioned by the National Museum mm. of Scotland when it first opened. And for those of you who have been there, there is a wonderful interweaving of collections and artistic responses uh, which actually is embellished with the architecture of the building which I think is, has been a very important uh, step in relation to that institution. Mm -hmm. Now one of the poems that I'd like to read very briefly is by a poet called Valerie Gillies who responded to what is called the Rotten Row, uh, Rotten Bottom, sorry, Bow which was discovered in 1990 by Hillwalker in the uplands uh, of southwest Scotland mm. in Tweedsmuir. Uh, and this was a longbow that was discovered underneath uh, peat hags uh, eroding away. Um, so I'll read the poem. The Tweed's Mule Bow. To try the draw weight, range finding, to look along the line before firing. To shoot the arrow, make the deer bound, to hear the bow snap and fling it down. To go on one knee and take away the string, to keep the sinew a precious thing. Now, the poets responded to the circumstances of the discovery of an object that um, I suppose she's created a moment and speculated as to why that object was mm -hmm. discarded. Uh, and I really liked that. It was so simply and elegantly done for, 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 you know, for a simple few lines. It opened up a world of possibilities yeah, for me. That's really nice. With the, you can really see the image of that in your head. And you had another one you were talking hmm. my, my, my love poem. Sorry, Erin, go on. No, I can't hear you, Erin. My long bows are, are resonating. <laughs> Have I gone? We, yes, Can yes. you hear me now? Yes, can hear you now. Can you hear me now? Yes. Hello. Ah. Okay, so my longbows were resonating applause for that poem. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the remarkable thing about that discovery is the yeah, longbow... Do you have you've got a stack of them? Oh, fantastic. Oh, you're lucky. We've only got one. Yeah, I've just got one myself. <laughs> no. oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> All longbow owners. Oh, you can't just on the Longbow... Longbows breed in direct correlation to the amount of arrows you lose. 
<laughs> I like it. That's good. <laughs> um, so you have another. So I have a loss of love. <laughs> Fantastic. You had. A... Are you talking about another poem as well, Gavin? There is another poem, which is again from the southwest of Scotland, at a site that is well known and I think well loved, uh, the site of Cairnholy, uh, which was probably built about the same time that the longbow was, you know, abandoned, lost um, in, in the uplands. And um, the poems by another Scottish poet called Tom Powell, who, uh, uh, you know, writes a lot about the southwest Scotland. So, at Cairnholy, the Cairnholy sun dyed the cold sky red, dispensed with forests, made sea echo stone. For in winter, Wigton deals elements, lead us like lapsed priests to its burial homes. On a court of dead grass before a facade of chiselled pillars, we lit two sparklers against the black mass of night. As darkness bled around our shelter, we made a mark there. With a brief ritual, of laughter and light. Two innocent fires circle each other. They spark off nuptials, like moths, each one light to the other. Till tired, dancing, they wither. The ceremony burns still, a small fire in my distant heart. Through bones stand on bones, our truest story is told by frail wires of ash, the color of care and holy stone. Oh, that's lovely. Friend, it's it's a beautiful poem and for me it captured so much of maybe the encounter of visiting the sites and that reflection that comes with imagining what may have happened in the past that entanglement again uh, i think the poet is very much captured for so long we've 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 been it's been frowned upon i mean to 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 actually put down on paper or put uh, put to, uh, in words, those feelings that you get when you visit places um, f for the first mm. time. And yet there is also a very long, long history of uh, poets being inspired by um, prehistoric places, obviously. Um, but so often we're, we um, we have to write things down in, in this non-emotional, flat way. Uh, but it can be converted into poetry, can't it, Erin? <laughs> it can, yes um not without blood sweat and tears yes yeah <laughs> um i'm in this last week i've written slightly over three thousand words of poetry wow for well done. performance this weekend and that was mostly because it's 125,000 years worth of science wow so that's quite a lot of science to grasp yeah um and then to express in a way that doesn't sound like a list yes mm. <laughs> so i did cheat i did cheat and i i used uh taliesin as a uh, structure oh lovely. so um that allowed a certain amount of uh listing to happen uh -huh. <laughs> while still being poetic but yes it it, it is possible to um reanimate both the landscape and the emotion through, through poetry and it's fantastic talking to people who particularly, particularly people in the science of archaeology who've become so trained to not do this yeah when yeah. they realize they're allowed to um 
it's like uh, it's like releasing sluice gates. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, and we need them to be writing in this way to tell us what they're feeling and what they're seeing. Because other, yeah. otherwise, you're only writing for each other. In the you know you know you're not writing for anyone else outside archaeology. But um, you have been uh, so you you are going to read us another poem um, that um, is inspired by this kind of um, kind of uh, um, academic writing. Is that right? Yes, I, I've got a couple of things here, but one of one of the ways I use poetry, other than to um, express the science, translate it and understand it for my, my own selfish mm. benefit, mm-hmm. um, it's so in response to people's papers. Mm. Um, so taking an abstract and then doing a cutout poem where you take some words from the abstract to create a response to that academic's work. Mm. Um, and one I've got here is um, from a paper by Mark Plusienic, who passed away recently, and he he was an intellectual mentor of mine from Lamperton many years ago, and then again in recent years, a fantastic exponent of narrative within archaeology. And so I'll read you his his title and his abstract, and then how the cutout poem works from that. I'm too sure how this will work on audio. Mm-hmm. So we'll normally spit down, but we'll give it a go. Yeah. Theological narratives and other ways of telling. With a few exceptions, archaeologists have been far less concerned with the form of their texts or problems of authorship than have ethnographers. Typically, archaeologies are presented in the form of narratives understood as stories. Approaches to narrative analysis drawn from literary theory, philosophy, sociology, and definitions of characters, events, and plots are here examined. Together with particular problems, these may pose for archaeology. It is suggested that neither literary analysis nor the tendency to write and evaluate archaeological and historical narratives in terms of explanatory value takes sufficient account of the often hybrid nature and aims of those texts and the contexts in which they were produced. This argument is illustrated with particular reference to stories of the Mesolithic, Neolithic transition in Europe. And it's argued that reconsidering archaeology's positioning across the 19th century science suggests a broader approach to the idea of what constitutes a narrative. And then that, it's quite long, it's still more to it than that, can mm. be traced down to archaeological ways of telling Archaeologists concerned with problems of authorship are drawn together in the hybrid stories of the science humanities divide. Much easier to put it in poetry. It is, isn't it? Yeah, that's and it, and it as I say, it really gets to the essence of it, doesn't it? Yeah, much and, easier. <laughs> and this is and when you have stacks and stacks and stacks of papers, um, I find just putting a, a, a little note with. Um, a cut-out poem of what's in it on the top allows me to shorthand what I'm looking for. Wow. Can you do that for all the journal articles? I think it should become a thing, that you should have a poem as a, a poem pricey for every single one. Because an abstract is even... Yeah, it is, it is far too long even, really, isn't it? 
<laughs> it is. It's your fault. Even when it's interesting like that one, you still, you know, you still find your mind wandering. <laughs> um, but, but I mean, we, we use it now when I'm writing, working on site reports. Yeah. Um, I'm speaking poems in. So the, they're quite good to go on front covers. Yeah. Gradually, gradually infiltrating. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. Yeah. <laughs> so if if you were to, we're coming to the end of the podcast, if you were to try to convince other archaeologists to have a go, poetry might not be their thing. It might be that they'd prefer to write some fiction or to write a song or to um, create some artwork or a sculpture or something like that. Um, how? What would you say to archaeologists? To, to what's the the main benefit of working in this creative way with the archaeology? What do you think, Gavin? Sorry to put you I on think, the spot. <laughs> I, 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 I don't. I think it's a complex answer. I'm sorry, Kim. Uh, I That's think fine. one of the best benefits, though, is that you're you're more likely, I think, to approach the issues differently I, th I think it's very easy to become quite formulaic in our narratives mm. you can read many site reports you can read many period studies and effectively it's the same thing being said in different places and I don't think it yes. actually engages with the essence of place or the essence of the material and it's, so it's, I think, in many ways it is it is actually cut and paste isn't it in 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 some some occasions you could actually it, see that it, it, it feels like with a little bit more effort, something could be drawn out. There's something important there. So as an archaeologist, I've long had an interest, for example, in phenomenology and in mm. a kind of more sensorial approaches to the past. And I think by engaging with different, engaging with different medium uh, and understanding those mediums in terms of the materiality, in terms of their form, in terms of their structure, is, is part of the process we do as archaeologists anyway. It's just, again, I think if people are supported to develop other practices and it takes time then i think they will be pleasantly surprised by how uh, rewarding it can be mm. and how it opens up new insights for both archaeologists and those we try and communicate with i think that well it was complex but a very i think that was very a very good way of explaining how useful it can be what about you erin what's what's the most how would you convince someone at to, to to take you on and get get some some poetry into their project i'd tell them to speak to gavin <laughs> <laughs> that's very kind <laughs> um actually as a slight aside to that that there was another poem i wanted to read out by a welsh poet oh lovely if, oh yes if, I, if i've got a moment in the welsh tradition um rs thomas famously famously said that the past does not exist uh, there's there's only the present, and mm. archaeology doesn't really exist in Welsh language poetry. Right. Instead, instead we have myth. Yeah. Mm. And so, attempting to find a prehistory poem in the Welsh language translated into English for this podcast, <laughs> I drew blank. So, luckily, I called upon uh, Dr. Dermot Johnson, who um, did me a rapid gloss of the only poem either of us could find in in welsh wow. and it's by waldo williams it's uh, Geneth ivanc a young girl and it's um it's about a skeleton that was found in avery in 1929 aha uh -huh. um and so this is a gloss it's not a formal translation but it's never been heard in english before wow wow so you've got a first here yeah <laughs> Geneth ivanc the stone skeleton was a young girl 
Each time anew she arrests my attention, a century for each year of my age, to her homeland I shall return. Hers were people who lived in peace, purchasing the earth's assistance with their gifts, reflecting on the mystery of birth and death, conserving the bonds of human family. They put her early in the ageless position of a babe, 12 times welcoming May, then the dark companions claimed her. No longer was her voice heard on the mountain. The wide sky was deeper then, bluer its blue thanks to her, and the timeless and invisible house was made more solid here on these good peaks. That was lovely. It's beautiful. Waldo, Waldo Williams, Waldo a Pembrokeshire. That's it. it um, it made me think of particularly when we dig, when we do dig up skeletons and we dig up people, how uh, the the this this academic way of writing about them is just not enough. It's, yes. Well, I think we've all got quite emotional during this podcast, which is um, testament to the to the power of poetry um, to move us and to engage us with these people who lived many, many generations ago, but were alive and and vital, just like we are. Um, and we can imagine their worlds, I think, much easier through poetry and through fiction. Um I'd like to give a massive thanks to my guests, Gavin McGregor and Erin Kavanagh. Um, how, what's, what's the best way, if people wanted to learn more about you or contact you, what would be the best way for them to get in contact? Erin? Um, I have a Facebook page specifically for this subject, Geomyth uh, Kavanagh. the link will be on on underneath the podcast and perhaps we could have um do you have an image of the um mark plutianic um abstract and your cut out poem do you have something like that that we that we could put on the podcast as well because you said it's quite good to see that visually too it it is it doesn't it it lends itself better to that yes i'll i'll scan that and send that thank you that would be lovely um, I also have a website that's just about to go live, but it's been derailed by the current writing. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you, when that does go live, we'll we'll uh, certainly promote it. Thank you, Erin. And Gavin, what's the best place that people can find out more about you or get in contact? Um, I'll give you my email address you can put up online uh, for people to contact me directly, but also they can have a look at my blog site, Heritage Landscape Creativity, and uh, I like to play about on Twitter as well. Yes, <laughs> so we can catch you on Twitter. Is, is it Gav McGregor? Is that what your Twitter handle is? Well, it's, uh, it's at gmacg at underscore G-Mac-G. one. That's right. Yes, I remember now. I I do kind of I have the, that image in my head. Um, right. So all of those links will be underneath the podcast. Um, Brilliant. I'm so pleased to have um, to have had both of you on the podcast, and thank you so much. It has been really wonderful to talk to you. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have, my listeners. Um, and. Um, look out for uh, another podcast in the future where I will be uh, the next one I'm hoping to be talking to Jill Cook and Ghislaine Howard um, about Ice Age art looking at Stone Age Boy by Satoshi Kitamura and um, 
the first drawing by Mordecai Gerstein, which are two children's picture books, but both, I think both together are very, very powerful. And I hope to talk to them about that. Um, but in the meantime, if you can't wait that long, there are plenty more podcasts to listen to on the Archaeology Podcast Network. So do keep listening. Thank you. Goodbye. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.